Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week. He says, thank you for taking my email in question. My girlfriend and I live. My girlfriend and I were trying to figure out if it is normal to participate in sexuality that involves kink. I don't think I have a sexual addiction problem, but I'm not sure. Can you help? Well, the truth of the matter is I can't help until you give me more information. I mean, what I know typically occurs is that people's sexuality is between the two of them, and whatever they're comfortable doing is not a problem if they both agree upon it. And let's face it, anything that's sexually addictive in nature, anything with a specific compulsion, anything that interferes in the functioning of oneself, the family, a relationship, work, well, that problematic sexual behavior is probably compulsive and is either a problem in that person's functioning or it's heading that direction. You know, sexual addiction is on a scale. It's a continuum. And somebody's compulsiveness at year two or three is way different than if it's at year five or six, 10 or 12, 20 or 30. And so I'll call you Robert. Um, You're going to need to email me more information about this because I can't answer that question. If you are considering yourself a sex addict and you do find your behavior um, compulsive, then we have to tease away, you know, is the kink behavior 
feeding into that addiction. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So send me some more information. Feel free to email me at carol at carolacoach.com. And I will be very happy to help you dissect this information or get you to the right person who can uh, meet with you and your girlfriend to discuss it further. All right. Well, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I tell you what, it has been a wild, wild week. Um, I have devoted almost all of my time to getting my online course done. And next week I will tell you how you can get it. The course is Help Her Heal, an empathy online course for sex addicts to help their partners heal. It goes along with the book. And at the same time, it's for people that, okay, so you got the book and you read the first couple of chapters and you just didn't get any further. You're not a reader. It's hard for you to sit down and do it. Now, I'm not going to encourage you multitasking, but what I do know to be true is that oftentimes, if you hear something, you're more likely to take it to heart and practice some of the skills and concepts. So this course, gosh, it has over 200 minutes of me talking about the situation. I don't read the book. I talk about it. And I have PowerPoint presentations. And then you got, you know, Carol the Coach in the corner dialoguing about these specific concepts. It's kind of like you got a therapist in the box, to be real honest. I am like this therapist who helps work you through the course. And I'm pretty excited about it. Um, I also have probably about 15 additional videos to help you understand concepts that are not necessarily in the book. And I'm I'm a, a blogger and I'm a columnist. And so I've included about 15 or 20 articles, columns, if you will, to help you understand sex addiction, partner betrayal, infidelity. And, you know, the most interesting thing occurred when I was, um, when I was working with Patrick Carnes. I was studying under him and... He devoted our second or third module to coaching. And most of you know, I'm a coach. That's why they call me Carol the Coach. So he had actually went through coaching and was so impressed with the concept of taking your life to the next level that he taught us that module so that we could in your restoration phase of getting healthy, you know, that's when you've got your recovery down, you know what you're doing, Um, you are practicing all the tools, you're working a good relationship, and what do you do next? You decide, hey, how can I take my life to the next level? Well, we all know that you take your life to the next level If you're in a 12-step program, by doing the 12-step, you give back. You help others. 
that's always fun and that's always exciting. And so clearly um, that's what the 12th step is all about. But in our course, Patrick Carnes gave us exercises to take you to the next level. Now, the truth of the matter was that these exercises were pretty new to the majority of the students in our class. But me, being a coach, I already knew most of the exercises. As a matter of fact, I gave him one of my manuals. If you go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach or you go to my other website, which is Carol the Coach, you can get my creative coaching manual, and that has 65 exercises to help take your life to the next level or to get you past your limiting beliefs, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? And so I said, Patrick, you got to see my manual. Maybe you want to publish it. I'm always looking for an opportunity to educate. Well, I gave him the manual. He told me it was great. He didn't offer to publish it. Um, I self-published it. So you can get that manual um, on the website. It's, it's great. But my point being that I included um, some of the exercises that I want you to do to take your life to the next level. So this online course has all 11 modules from the book. It has me teaching you the concepts and sharing information about clients I've worked with and and clinicians and coaches that I've worked with. And it's all very, very personal. And then I I don't give you any quizzes or tests, if you will. Um, I do give you a couple of assessments to take on intimacy. And I include a podcast that Patrick Carnes and I did together. Uh, when he talked about how to take his life to the next level, I included, um, oh, it's, the, uh, it's a 10-minute Sparks TED Talk. We call them Sparks here, here in Indiana, and I was the keynote. And so it's about the gifts of being a sex addict, which what I really meant was the gifts of being a recovering sex addict. So I've just included all this content for you, and you can get it. Um, for an amazing price, I don't think I'm allowed to tell you what the price is, but I will figure out how to get that on my website this week now that I've formally published it today, and hopefully you'll all be interested in it. Now, I'm super excited because I have Jake Porter um, on the show tonight, and you've probably heard of Jake. He's been on my show before. He's been on my other podcast. And I am loving what he's going to be talking about tonight because he, he talks about the five distinct phases for the addict and the partner and the coupleship. And he wants to tonight discuss the third of these five phases known as the grief phase. And that's the phase in which both the addicted partner and betrayed partner face more fully the losses brought on by the consequences of sexual addiction. And I was just doing a study course with Brene Brown, and Brene said that after she did hours and hours and hours of research, she realized that she couldn't publish forgiveness in the first two of her books because there was something missing. And then she realized that what was missing is that when people experience drama and trauma, 
they experience grief and they have to almost accept the fact that something has died if they're to work through the beginning, the middle, and the end stages of forgiveness. So I'm going to ask Jake about that too. Jake is of DaringVentures.com. He's, he's a speaker. He's an author. He is, um, oh, he's a wonderful person. He and his wife came and visited me, and we did some boat riding. And, and so I'm just really excited to have him on the show talking about the third phase and everything else that that involves. So, hey, Jake Porter, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. I'm so glad to be back with you. I'm missing that boat ride yeah. right about now, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I don't, I don't know how it is there, but it is beautiful. This is the first official day of fall, and it's still 83 degrees. So we're into wow. an Indian summer for sure. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's great. Well, we got lots of rain this past week, so we were, we were needing a boat just to get around Houston. But uh, every everything's good down here now, so we're we're making it. Yes, I forgot you're from Houston, and boy, you all were in my prayers for sure. So Thank you're you. okay, your wife's okay, and and your clinic's okay. Yes, we are. We are all okay. We know a lot of folks who were affected, but but thankfully we're we're doing all right. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm excited to be talking about grief tonight because, you know, from an APSAT um, perspective, and that is partner-sensitive information, we know that that second phase that a partner goes through is grief. And it's, you know, grieving and mourning, the loss of what was, the loss of what could have been, and the loss of what you thought you had and then you didn't. And certainly when a partner goes through this, the addict does too, in addition to his own individual losses that he or she is dealing with in regards to letting go of the addiction. So tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit, when most people think about grief, you know, they think of the basics. They think about a death of a loved one. Tell me what you mean when you talk about these five phases and the third one being the grief phase. Yeah, absolutely. You um, you said it really well right there when you were talking about the losses that that begin to stack up for a couple that is experiencing the discovery of a sex addiction or chronic betrayal. Um, both for, for each of them individually, for the addicted partner, for the uh, betrayed partner, and also for the relationship as a whole. And, um, you know, it, it, it's right there in the middle. You, you talked earlier just a few minutes ago about how there are five phases in, in the ITAP model, uh, three phases in the ATSAT model. They really overlay very nicely. In both models, grief is right smack dab in the middle. It's right there in the middle. And and you know it's really about having to come okay the bleeding has hopefully stopped but now the pain you know the deeper pain has to be treated and 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 grief is that point where we really look at what has happened where am i now where can i go from here here and 
I I mostly see couples. I do see some uh, individuals, but most of, of my clients come to me as couples, and for them it's about a story. You know, the discovery of betrayal or sex addiction, it totally changes the story for a partner, the partner who's been in the dark, uh, who didn't know about acting out behaviors, or for, for the addicted partner who has been so compartmentalized in life and, and been able to keep these two um, boxes tightly sealed and isolated from each other, and now suddenly worlds collide, that's, those stories are now messed up as well. And, and so when I talk a lot about grief in that middle phase of recovery, it's, it's about how all the files in our life, in our memory of, of everything that's happened and the order in which we place them in our mind and the meaning that was assigned by this storyline that was given to them. Now those files we've seen, they've been turned upside down and dumped out, and, and for the partner who's discovered new bits of reality, new files have been thrown in the mix, and it's like, now what do we do with this mess on the floor? How do we put this together? What kind of story are we going to have now that uh, – that we've lost the story we thought we had. Yeah, and so how do you help people who are dealing with that kind of grief? Um, because it, it, there are so many layers to that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you know, um, the, the first thing I would say about that is that you don't do grief work too soon. In fact, I would, I would go a step further than that. I would say you can't do grief work too soon. Um, grief, here's the way I say it to my clients. Grief is a luxury for the brain that knows it's safe. So think about a partner, a betrayed partner who's just discovered that all, you know, all this other world was happening um, and she didn't know anything about it. And and now, as, as we now well know, that causes a, a trauma reaction. That is traumatic. And in those initial um, days, weeks, and months after discovery, then the brain is, is on alert. They're hypervigilant. They need to know they're safe. And so really, grief work, I believe, needs to take place after there's been a formal therapeutic disclosure so that the partner has a full sense of reality so that her brain can begin to come down out of that state of hypervigilance and, and really look at the situation really more with the whole brain online. Because here's, the, here's an analogy I use. When, when a, a soldier is in the battlefield and his, his best buddy um, you know, is, is, is shot, he, he doesn't grieve in that moment. He's, he's in survival mode, and, and it's not going to be you know, until after he's safe and maybe he's, he's pulled his buddy uh, out. It's not until after the, the bullets aren't flying that he really starts to process what's happened and can begin to feel the grief of what's going on. And so, so that's the first thing I would say about helping, helping couples, helping individuals who are going through this. You don't begin the grief work until after the full reality is known and the brain can begin to come out of that hypervigilance and into a place of, of relative safety. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. And, again, that correlates 
very well with both what Patrick Carnes advises and also um, what APSATS has advised, that there's got to be that safety and stabilization. But part of that right. safety and stabilization is knowing the truth. And i got to tell you something. I um, just recently worked with a man whose uh, wife and he, they went through uh, a disclosure. It went really well. He was 100% honest. He passed his polygraph. She actually ended the disclosure saying, wow, I have to say I've got some real compassion for you. Because when Mm. he went into how long he had been struggling with this and how the compulsion got the best of him, she was able to see that, yes, it directly affected her, but it really was about him. He could not stop. And I was really very pleased with that, that the disclosure uh, allowed her to feel some compassion for him because up until that point, she was furious. I mean, she could have spit on him. She was so mad at him. Mm. Now, here's the interesting part. I referred her for trauma with a therapist. Unfortunately, we didn't have a trauma-based therapist here that, that was sex addiction or partner sensitive. When she heard the drama therapist that I had done this three-hour disclosure with them, she gasped and she said, oh, my gosh, that woman tortured you. That was torture and that was, what did she say? Um, Well, she was indicating that it was medically inappropriate for me to have done that. Yeah. And I know that people don't know what they don't know, but why do you think? as I do, that disclosures are imperative, if the partner wants it, they're imperative to the beginning of the start of knowing the truth. Oh, well, um, I I think it's imperative because the evidence, and and when I say evidence, I don't use that word lightly, the evidence of the traumatic effect of discovery on the brain and the and the specific parts of the brain that are affected by betrayal trauma, it is different than other sorts of trauma. So if if someone suddenly loses a loved one or they're in a car accident, or, you know those those sorts of traumas, um, we know that the, the the hippocampus and the well, I'm sorry, the amygdala is affected. That part of the limbic system deep down in the brain, little almond size, almond-shaped part of the brain, it's like the brain's fire alarm, right? It's the threat alert. It keeps us hypervigilant and, and kind of on edge, and it, it can keep us keyed up. That is universally affected when, um, when someone is experiencing trauma. But, and this is, this is a, a piece of neurobiology that overlaps between both trauma and grief. Uh, there's actually some studies from parents who lost children in China, some fMRI studies where they actually scanned the brain and found that some had PTSD, some didn't have PTSD, but had prolonged grief. And an overlap in their brains was that the left hippocampus for each had, had experienced uh, a significant effect from the loss or the trauma. And, and here's why that's so important. The left hippocampus is particularly associated with our sense of self and the world. Who am I and what is this world? 
it's it's the part of the the brain that takes all of our memories. That file cabinet I was talking about earlier. It's that file cabinet where we take everything that's happened and we put it in an order, and that order gives it meaning. When that file cabinet's all turned over and all those files are scattered, your brain cannot calm down to feel safe. It can't do it because we need that storyline to have a sense of safety, to know that to know we, we have some idea of what to expect in the world, what our place is in the world. So so to to take a, a partner who's just learned that for five, ten, fifteen and you and I have treated people 30, 40, 50 years. There, there's been this huge part of their life they didn't know about. There was a threat to them the whole time. To tell them they should be able to move forward without a process of getting the full reality that allows them to make sense of their story again and what's happened, that's, that's basically asking someone to um, – to compartmentalize a part of their brain, to, to dissociate almost from a part of themselves. Um, we need that full story both for the processing of the trauma and then to continue the grief work. Well, and you and I both know that in a therapeutic disclosure, this is a way to give this information safely with the support of one, two, Three therapists, you know, I mean, a lot of times we'll mm-hmm. have coaches in on those. I mean, there's just a lot, lot of opportunity to hear the truth with a lot of safety. And so you know that disclosure is imperative for somebody who's going to be working through their grief. Now, absolutely. tell me, tell me a little bit about how does grief fit into recovery? From sexual addiction and betrayal trauma, what what does that do for for recovery? So, um, well, uh, today, for example, I did a disclosure with a couple uh, who, who's here from out of state, and um, it went very very well. Um, it I I could see, I mean, literally see with my eyes that when he came back and he had passed the polygraph and she knew she had the full truth and that he had really committed to this process and been honest and that all her uh, greatest fears of what the truth might have been, when that was all, all those question marks turned into periods, as one of my friends and coaches, Kathy Reynolds, says, she was visibly lighter. She, she, you could see the weight lifted from her. And because we know that uh, the brain has a negativity bias. Its number one job is to keep us safe. So before that disclosure, it's worst-case scenario. Now, tomorrow morning, they're going to show up in my office for day two of this intensive, and we're going to talk about grief. And, and what that means is that now that she knows the full extent of his acting out. She knows what her reality was. Now that he no longer has secrets, now that he, he is not in fear, you know, shame keeping him uh, in prison by the fear of what would happen if she knew. He's free from that. She's free from her worst-case scenario fears of what could have been the reality. They can now actually look at what it was. 
And we're going to begin going piece by piece through this relationship and looking at what's, what's been lost, what's the reality of what they have lived uh, for the last two decades. And, and the purpose of that is, is this. So, so for a couple, the identity of the relationship. Think about that. You know, uh, I, when when we had our boat ride, I was able to meet uh, your husband. Great guy. You met my wife, and you know, we talk about. You ask, how did you meet? Who, you know, who are you as a couple? What do you do? You share your story. Okay. Mm-hmm. So with my wife, if someone asks, I share the story. Well, what happens to a, to a couple or to someone in a coupleship when all of a sudden the story they thought they had. The story on which their idea of the relationship's identity was built, that story shattered. Well, Mm -hmm. now we've got to have a new story. We've got to figure out a way to come to terms with, yes, these things happened, the things you knew about and the things you didn't, and and put those together. And what does that mean? And, And the couple has to do that together. I'm sure you've seen, Carol, couples where... Individually, he has a good recovery program. He's sober. She's gone through her initial trauma work. She's doing better. She's grounded. She's growing. But it's year three, year four post-discovery, and the marriage doesn't make it, even though individually they're doing great. It's my belief that, that the breakdown there was in the grieving process. They didn't grieve together, meaning they didn't go back and stand over the grave of the old storyline of the relationship and walk away together with a, with a new story that's shared by both of them of who they are and what this world is and who they are to each other. Well, that sounds incredible. So here you are. You're on day two, and do you begin that process on day two, or do you set up additional appointments to begin that story? Well, it depends on if it's um, a couple that I see here locally who, you know, I get to see them every, uh, every other week or whatever versus a couple who's come in for an intensive. So, so with with this, all, first of all, all of my intensives are they're different for every couple. I design every single one for that exact couple because no two couples are the same. This particular couple, just based on the assessments that I did, I I, I believe they're going to be ready to begin the grief work tomorrow. Now they had some preparation work for that, and that preparation work included. I, I have a whole process whereby they individually look at the cost of um, the acting out behaviors. What did it cost them individually? What did it cost their relationship? What's been lost? What are the, and I I do it in a way that it's very emotionally focused. I pull from emotionally focused therapy, Sue Johnson. I know you're a big fan of that too, Carol. Mm -hmm. And and so I pull some stuff from EFT um, and some other, other models as well. And have a very emotion-focused, attachment-rooted um, process that they've gone through before they came to begin to individually think through some of this stuff. And then tomorrow, um, 
we will we will begin to look at the pieces. We'll we'll stand over the grave together, and and it's really about hearing each other's perspectives. And and we, it's my belief we always start with uh, having the the addicted partner try to enter the world of the betrayed partner. He, so uh, I've done uh, a training with Stan Tatch in the Pax training, and, and I love how he said it. He said, look, when there's been betrayal, the betrayed partner gets to set the terms for reentry into the relationship. And, and, and a part of that is that we help our, our addicted partners begin to – to enter into and feel that pain, and you've done a great job with your new book on that, Help Her Heal. Uh, we're, we're using that and recommending that like crazy um, to help them gain those skills for empathy, not just for empathy's sake. It's ultimately so they can share a story, so they can understand each other's journeys, and so that then they can ha- have a joined experience and joined story once more. Well, and so I've got a couple of questions. One is for a listening audience. They may not know what is an intensive. You know, it kind of gets dicey. IOP, intensive outpatient, intensive weekend, intensive retreat. Tell them what your intensives are like. You customize them. Yeah. What do they expect time-wise? Sure. So I have done intensives that range from one day. And, I mean, I've, I've had people, you know, fly in from out of state for a one-day intensive. Um, I usually encourage folks, look, if you're going to go to all the expensive travel, uh, let's, let's do a little bit more work if you can tolerate it. Uh, most of the intensives, intensives that I do end up being three days, but I've also done four and five days. And, and here, here's what it means. You know, think about weekly therapy, you know, a one-hour session, and you get in and you spend – five minutes talking about traffic and the weather, and then, you know, 10 minutes, they catch you up on what's happened in the last week, and now you have about 30 minutes to do some deep work, and then you got to do, you know, five, 10 minutes to put them back together and, and, and close it all brief. up and put a bow on it. That's right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so really, you're getting, you're getting about 30 minutes of, of really good work in an, in an hour-long session. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's going to be more. Sometimes it might be less. An intensive is where we spend all day together, maybe for multiple days, and it's exactly as it sounds. It is intense. And, um, and people come. I do lots of disclosure intensives. I do lots of grief intensives. One of the intensives that's one of my, my, my favorites to do, we call it relational dynamics intensives. So these are for folks where, you know, sobriety's been established, uh, disclosure's been done, maybe individually they've, they've gotten traction, but there's still that underlying dynamic where they, they can't seem to connect with each other. And we spend about three days really mapping out the relational dynamics and helping them create a new dynamic at the level of their implicit memory, their procedural memory. So it's, it's show me therapy. It's let's, let's see what it's like. I, I utilize a lot of Stan Tatchin's past model for that. So, 
so when I do intensives, people go to my website, daringventures.com. There's a page on intensives, and they start out just by filling out like an application because the truth is not every couple is going to be a good fit for an intensive. I actually probably between one and three and half of the people that I talk to, I, I either refer them to a different intensive program or to people, try to help them find people locally who could provide what they need because it's not going to be a good fit for everyone. But for those who, who are a good fit, you can get, I really believe, I've seen people get three to six to even like eight months, I think, worth of, of treatment within a span of three or four or five days. That's a very powerful model uh, for those situations for which it's appropriate. Well, absolutely, and, and I think it's interesting that you have several different types. So let's talk about this grief intensive for a minute because what do you think is a good definition for the grief that comes after discovery of an addiction? You know, what, what would the definition yeah. be? Yeah, so, so grief is what we feel. It's a natural process. Um, involving what we feel in response to a loss. That's kind of a general definition of grief. So, so there's this sort of objective act that we would call bereavement. That's the loss itself. Grief is the process of how we respond to that loss. Um, it, it can be helpful to actually distinguish that from mourning. You know, the process of mourning, that's the public expression of grief. And it, you know, every culture may have different elements of it. But but really, grief is what we feel when something or someone who is so intertwined with, with us that we in part like built our understanding of who we are, what kind of place this world is on that person or thing's present, when that person or thing is suddenly gone. And I think about um, – I, I was a pastor for many years, and so I spent a lot of time with people who were grieving, did lots of funerals. And, and I, I remember one time sitting with a – a woman, she was probably, I don't know, 87, 88, something like that, and she had just lost her husband, and and uh, she had lost him, I think it was that day or the day before, and I had gone to her home to talk about the funeral services, and there was this moment she was sitting in her chair, and I was asking her about her life with her husband and all this, and she said, oh, I'd asked her something like, you know, well, when was it that you actually moved into this community? And she said, oh, and she said, oh, when was that? And she turned to the chair where her husband used to sit. You know, it was so ingrained in her. She had been with him so long, and he had sat in that chair next to her for so long that, that without thinking, it was part of her implicit memory, her procedural memory of how she does life in this world, that when she doesn't know, she turns to him, and there he is, and she asks the question, well, grief. Grief is figuring out what am I going to do now that that's no longer my reality. That's no longer my world. So in the recovery process well, – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and I was going to say, obviously for that woman, um, there, there was that transition from she really was not at a place yet where she felt like she was going solo – he was still with her, and that's why she so easily could look over there and and wonder those things. And 
So this woman was experiencing grief um, in in the same way or a different way than a sex addict or a partner would experience grief. I, I think it's very similar, and it's similar in this way. Um, think about a a partner who um, who whose spouse has been that primary attachment figure. And we know the, the safety, the security that we get from our primary attachment figures. And so the partner who simultaneously feels the threat of, of what she's discovered or the pain of learning this new reality and finds herself reaching for the very person who has caused that pain and then catches herself do it and pulls away. That's, that's, a, that's a reality of grief. That's, that's a world in which I always thought I could reach in this direction for safety, and it's part of my procedural memory. It's just what I do, and yet I catch myself. That's not the world I live in right now. Now, as therapists, we hope we can help them get back to that place. But in that moment, one expression of her grief is, I don't have the sense of safety in this relationship that I used to. I don't have the sense of comfort in this relationship that I used to. And so, but yet there's still a reaching because that's the world I've known for so long. Now flip to the other side for the sex addict. Now, and, and this, is, this is so hard for a lot of partners to understand, but there's, and you alluded to this earlier, Carol, there is a grieving for the addict in the loss of the addiction. That doesn't mean he wants to go backwards. You know, most every actually every addict I know who takes recovery says they never want to go backwards. But there is a way of being that they have known, a way of self-soothing, a way of making it through the world, a survival strategy flawed as it was, that in a very primal sense, their brain tells them it kept them safe and okay, and they might find themselves in moments reaching figuratively, metaphorically, for that old way, even while simultaneously wanting to stay sober, wanting to continue in a direction of recovery. That is actually a reality of grief. Yeah, you know, that makes total sense. For our listening audience, I am talking to Jake Porter, and Jake is talking about the third phase in the five stages or phases of, um, is it grief? Or what is the entire recovery um, model that you're using here where stage three is specifically the grief phase? Sure. This is a model that um, that uh, originated with Patrick Carnes. He did a, a whole bunch of research. I think it was originally in his book, don't call it love, though I could be a little off on that. And then Stephanie Carnes did a parallel study looking at partners of sex addicts, and they found there were five phases. And the, there's, there's actually a, a similar process for the coupleship as well. So the phases are um, that, that initially there is, uh, like right at discovery, um, the, the, the initial stage where there's got to be screening and and where discovery happens, um, and and to be honest, I just I just blanked on the word that they used 
in uh, in the actual um, chart there. It's hold on, it's wrong. Um, recognition, the recognition phase. So that's when there's uh, screening that takes place, and the highest level of care is needed, and there's you know it stops the bleeding and, and creates a triage. The second phase is the impact phase. And here we begin to really create safety in more formal ways. We begin to set boundaries, uh, do a lot of psychoeducation around the trail trauma. And, and it's in the impact phase, um, which that's what we call it for the coupleship, for the, the partners individually, the addicted partner and the betrayed partner. It's the shock phase, right? Um, so for, for an addict, there's going to be a lot of emotional numbness and disorientation, and they're just frantically trying to control all the damage. For the betrayed partner, there's suspicion and, and despair and questioning and distress and hypervigilance. Uh, for the couple, we call that the impact phase. And the main task there, in addition to creating some initial safety, is to prepare them for and get them to the disclosure process. The disclosure mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. hopefully then gets them into the third phase, which, which we would call the grief phase. Um, for the partners, it's grief and ambivalence. Um, and and for, the re- for the relationship, we call it grief and amends. So here we do impact letters and reconciliation letters and different formal processes for, for building that empathy and um, building a plan to rebuild trust. And this is where – see, I, I think that the greatest way to rebuild trust, uh, to help a, um, one of my guys rebuild trust with his wife is to teach him to enter the grief process with her, to teach him to stand over the grave with her, to not run from her pain or run from her anger, but to – to be curious about it and, and even desire to understand it because that's going to open him up to his own losses as well, his own pain, his own um, uh, sense of anger even at the losses. So, so that's that middle phase, and then – and of course these are all overlapping. The, the next phase then is the repair phase, and in the repair phase, that's when we can start looking at those underlying dynamics which um, – which have, have kind of been the backstory in which a lot of the acting out behaviors have probably taken off. Uh, that's when we may start looking at family of origin issues and that sort of thing. And then finally, the last stage, it's the growth stage for them individually. Um, for the coupleship, it's the recommitment phase. And so here, this is fun. I love it when I get a couple to this phase because here we, I do a lot of values work and they create new values. As a, as a coupleship and do some creative work around that as a way to, you know, let's create something that you can put up in your house to remind you of who you are and this new identity and new vision for the relationship. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of excitement and joy in that phase. So, so those are the five phases. And I actually have them all in a PDF. And if, if anyone listening wants that, they can reach out to me. They can email me, Jake, J-A-K-E at daringventures.com. Just tell me you want the phases of recovery PDF, and I would be happy to send that to you. Okay, Jake, I want that PDF 
send it to me. Okay. <laughs> you got it. You got and it. I'll do it. Again, I'm I'm talking to Jake Porter, and he is the founder of DaringVentures.com, and he does intensives. I know that a lot of people have wanted to work with you in counseling, but really you're saving yourself for the intensive process, correct? That's right. More and more I'm, I'm trying to reserve more space to that um, in my schedule uh, because I, I don't want people to have to wait forever, you know, and uh, especially mm-hmm. for – those couples who are waiting for disclosure, that could be misery to put them off for too long. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing more and more disclosures. Well, and Jake has the most unusual belief system about grief. It's in part um, part of the Patrick Carnes model, and it was um, don't call it love. And he believes that when couples can harness the power of grief and trauma to promote positive personal growth in service of the client's relationship, they can transform old relational dynamics and establish new, more secure attachments. And let's face it, attachment is where it's all at. And so it's through this process that you begin to teach them healthy ways of forming attachments. Is it not? It is. It really is. So um, I've used that metaphor a few times of standing over the grave. I'll uh, I'll Mm -hmm. give credit where it's due to the extent that I can. That came from a client, Um, and we were doing this this sort of grief work, and it was him and his wife. And uh, this is a client, you know, crusty old Southern man, you know, just just hard shelled. I mean, clearly loved his wife, loved his wife and family, um, but wasn't always the most tender and soft in our sessions. And I was okay. That's not what she needed all the time because she knew him. She just wanted him to show up authentically. But there was a day when we were doing grief work, and 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 what I was actually doing was I was helping her to express the pain of her loss while helping him. Tolerate it. Now think about that. It, it's a powerful moment for a couple where, for for the thirty something years that they've been together, the pattern has been that when she tried to express her pain, he would either shut her down or run away. And and what what we did was I I just helped her get out just enough and him stay just present enough that he experienced connection with her through her pain. And that is how the attachment injury between them began to get repaired. She felt seen and heard. He um, felt like he was able to actually be present and help her with her pain. He was enough to do that. His shame didn't drive him away. And, uh, and he said, in that moment, he said, he got all teary-eyed and soft and said, you know what? Maybe one day we'll be able to stand over the grave, and it won't all just be heartbreak. And I thought, that's it. That's it. To be able to one day go back and stand over that grave and remember, remember the love, remember, remember what was. And be okay with that because you have something new now. 
Well, exactly. And I'm curious, you know, you talk about in this work grief waves differing from trauma triggers. So can you explain the difference and what do you believe is neurobiologically going on in the grief process? Sure, sure. So this is a this is totally me. So, so if it's wrong, it's all my fault. Okay, um, but I, I, so I work with couples. Um, you know, we talk about triggers, and I do a lot of work with triggers. I've I've been on your show talking about trigger buster procedures and that sort of thing. Um, and and I I started noticing that some of my betrayed partners, when I was working with these couples, as they got further out from discovery and then post-disclosure, they would use the word trigger, but I could intuitively tell, I could, I could feel it in my body, that what they were talking about, what they were describing as a trigger was something different than it had been a month or two or three or four months before for them. And I began to think about what is this, and, and what I think is going on is that they're transitioning from having trauma triggers to grief waves. So a trauma trigger is early on when the hypervigilance is, is um, way high, you know, it's, it's still, um, they're on edge, and, you know, any little thing can, can be a reminder, and it sets off that trauma reaction, and, and there's all sorts of ways trauma reactions can, can play out. But it's very, and I wish you could see my hands right now, it's like in the head. And, and, and all my partners who I do this with, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's up there. It's like high. It's in the head. It's, it's like an explosion up there. Right, right. Okay, fast forward. You're out of the impact phase. That initial trauma, those initial trauma triggers have started to be healed. You're more grounded. You're more stable. You're in grief. Now we're having grief waves. This is a deeper reality. Now my hands are on my gut. It's from down here. It's a more raw pain. It's 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 a it's just a deeper sensation. And grief, this is a, a, a well known analogy. It's like waves in the ocean. And you know, I live I live near the, the Gulf of Mexico and Galveston Island and you can wade out into the water there and wade out sort of chest level and little waves will kind of lap and hit you right right about your neck and hitting your neck and hitting your neck and then all of a sudden there's this wave that seems to come out of nowhere and it just smacks you upside the face and that's how grief works just out of nowhere this sudden swell of and it, it, it could be pain it could be um, uh, anger right it could be all sorts of emotions everyone's grief looks different but that's how I separate um, a trauma trigger from a grief wave. And I think it's important to help our partners understand the difference. Number one, it's a marker of progress for them. I can say to them, oh, I know that's so painful, but it's so good. Don't you understand? Grief is a luxury for the brain that knows it's safe. You're beginning to heal from that initial trauma. You're moving forward in your recovery. I pull out that phases of recovery chart and I say, look, see, you're not here anymore. You're here. And that gives so much hope. So it's important for that reason, for, for the betrayed partner. It's important for the addicted partner so that he can feel that progress as well and so that he understands this is something different than what it was before. Because otherwise they get stuck oh. thinking, oh, nothing's happening. It's all the same. 
So, so those are that, that's how I distinguish the two, Carol. I love the fact that you describe it like that. And you know, when you think of it as a luxury, that it's actually going to navigate you through a process so that you really can live the life you deserve. Um, that's a really nice reframe. So, Jake, we have about one more minute. What else would you like to share with our listening audience? And, again, I want to remind them that they can get a hold of you by contacting you at either jake at daringventures.com or going to www.daringventures.com. So give us the last word. What would you tell people about grief? Here's what I would say, and you mentioned Brene Brown's uh, words on grief right before I joined you, and I'm also uh, a a Daring Way uh, facilitator as well. And grief, it does involve a death, but here's, here's what I believe about death. I believe that death opens the way to new life. We see it every springtime. When the, when, when the leaves that died in the fall and the trees that seem dead in the winter start budding new life in the spring. We, we have the stories in, across cultures of all different stories of death and new life. And, and as someone who identifies as a Christian, for me, you know, the, the, the story of the cross and a tomb that was empty. And I, what I say to people is have hope. Because I believe that we live in a world where if, if we will walk forward in faith and we, if we trust this process, you will find new life at the other end. But that means you've got to let go of that corpse, as scary as it is, and we've got to stand over that grave, but we've got to trust there's something new and beautiful and better. It can even be better on the other side. Grief is powerful. It's transformative. It's healing. And, um, and it is the way into freedom um, on the other end of sex addiction and betrayal. Well, thank you so much, Jake. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it. And I um, look forward to hearing more about what you have to offer our listening audience in the future. Thanks for offering those well, intensive and um, appreciate the work you do for Partners, Addicts, and the Coupleship. Thank you, Carol. You do so much for our field and for um, the populations we work with, and I appreciate you, and I look forward to the next time, my friend. All right. You take care. You too. All right. So, again, that was Jake Porter from Daring Ventures, and I am so happy to have him on my show. He has a wealth of knowledge no matter what he's speaking about. Super amazing. And thank you for listening tonight because it really matters that you care about your issues surrounding sex addiction, partner betrayal. If you're in a coupleship, the coupleship is not your relationship with your families. You know, not all sex addicts are in relationships. So, again, I thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week. Uh, And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. We'll talk soon.